0: Hey everybody, welcome to Sporting Dog Talk. I'm your host, Tony Peterson. Today's episode is brought to you by Purina. I got a couple labs in my house that are eating Purina right now. The puppy, she's chomping away on a formula designed just for young, large breed working dogs that has a whole bunch of good stuff in there. The DHA, Omega 3s and 6s, the stuff she really needs to to grow Brain development, joint joint health, all of that stuff. The gut microbiome, and of course, my older dog is also living on Purina Pro Plan Sport, chicken and rice thirty twenty. She does really well on that, and that is formulated, of course, to take care of dogs that are getting after it. And if you have a puppy, or you have an old dog, or a middle aged rock star that's going to be out there in the field any day now, go take a look at what Purina has to offer. They they create the Best stuff on the market. This episode is also brought to you by Lucky Duck. I've got a pile of Lucky Duck stuff in my garage because duck season is coming up. We just put out one of their blinds on a spot where I'm hoping my little pupster gets her first wood ducks or teal. They also have motorized decoys, non-motorized decoys, and the Lucky Kennels, which is what I'll be hauling my dogs around in. Those Lucky Kennels are available in two different sizes, and they are my favorite. They are built bomb-proof, they are lightweight, and they just really work for an active lifestyle where not only do you travel with your dog, but you want your dog to have a safe space at home. Check out luckyduck.com. You'll see all of this stuff that I've talked about and more there. And of course, we are brought to you by Canine Athlete. Canine Athlete has three different supplements. They've got their new dog, which is a three in one supplement, it's basically a quality of life booster. They've got Hydrate and Recover, which obviously helps your dog hydrate and recover. A great option for dogs that are training or getting out there hunting right now. And they have their new Canine Pro Daily Probiotic for Digestive and Immune Health, which addresses the gut microbiome. This is important stuff. I think in the next 10 years with the research we're seeing, we're going to realize how truly crucial taking care of your dog's gut microbiome is to you know, their immune system to obviously keeping their digestive system working properly and everything like even helping them maintain body weight, go to wildernessathlete.com, which is the parent company for canine athlete and look at what they've got. You can check out the stuff that they've got for people as well. There's a whole bunch of uh, pre-workout, post-workout, vitamins, all kinds of uh Really important stuff if you're working out and you're getting ready to go chase chuckers or sharpies or maybe even just roosters. Use the code SDT20 at the checkout and they are going to give you 20% off of your first order. My guest today is a fellow named Keith McGregor. He's the manager of canine training at Leader Dogs for the Blind. Now, I've been trying to get somebody on who trains guide dogs for a long time and I'm so glad that Keith decided to come on the podcast such an interesting guy. He's got 40 years of dog training in. And even though the dogs he's training are to highly specific environments and clients, I was amazed at how many parallels there are to the bird dog world and the hunting dog world. This is an interesting one. Even if you think oh, I only run a GSP and I like to hunt quail, this isn't my thing. Listen to it. This is one of the podcast i learned more talking to this guest than just about anyone i've ever spoken with so interesting as always thank you so much for listening to sporting dog talk i can't tell you how much we appreciate your support so truly honestly thank you for that come here bear i'm dead bear i'm dead that dog is family do something with a dog it it improves your overall quality of life Keith, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Tony. I appreciate you having me
0: on the program. You you are, in some ways, one of my heroes. And here's why. (laughs) You agreed to do this podcast, and I bet I have reached out to probably seven or eight people in the the guide dog space who've either just flat out ignored me or told me <laughs> no <laughs> and we were just talking off air and you you love to hunt and fish and you you, you fit in nicely with our, our audience so you know we have a lot of hunting dog owners who listen to this but you are you're working in a space with dogs that we just have never covered yet so I'm so excited I'm so grateful that you decided to come on
1: great I'm excited to be here and uh you know I've h- had hunting dogs in the past and um, haven't done a lot of training with them, but it's always exciting to see dogs working, whether they're hunting or being guides for visually impaired people or any other service dogs. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let let
0: the audience know where you work, when you started there and how you got to this, this place you're at now.
1: Okay. Well, it's, um, a little embarrassing because I've been working here for 40 years. So it, it makes me sound really old, but that's okay. Um, I started on dog care, just taking care of dogs and learning about dog behavior and things like that, and within a couple of years, um, applied to become an apprentice instructor. So, the apprenticeship at a guide dog school usually takes about three years to learn how to be a guide dog instructor, Um, and the reason that we have to learn all about dog behavior and, and teaching dogs, we also have to learn about visual impairments and how to work with clients with visual impairments. So I became a guide dog instructor and was a guide dog instructor for 10 years. And then I saw a need for people who were duly disabled. So they had both hearing and vision loss. So I went to school to learn sign language and Leader Dogs supported me in that process. And I started the first program in the United States for deaf blind guide dog users. So the people, some of them are totally deaf, totally blind, and um, they're able to use guide dogs um, efficiently and safely. And so I can talk more about that a little bit later. Um, And then I got into management and I became um, one of the managers over the training department at Leader Dogs. And I still supervise the deaf-blind program to a certain extent and help out with that as needed. Oh, so let's, let's back way up here.
0: You got into this and did your apprenticeship to to train dogs for, you know, blind or visually impaired people, right? And right. then in that process you saw the need for dogs that would be trained for people who who are visually impaired and can't hear as well. That's correct. Okay. How do you how do you come across that? Like how how does that really start?
1: Well, um so uh, Leader Dogs um, has kind of been known in the guide dog industry for giving people chances that might that other guide dog schools might not accept into their program. So we had a woman that came here, you know, 30 some years ago now um, that was deaf blind. She had a little bit of remaining vision, and so she could read our lips uh, to a certain extent. Again, only about 60% of what we said she could understand. While talking to her, she encouraged me to go learn sign language, and she said there's a large deaf-blind population in the United States, and they would love to have a guide dog, and I thought, this is the first person I've ever met with a dual disability like this, and uh, so I went to school to learn sign language, and I went to a national convention for people who are deaf-blind, and there were thousands of people, and I was uh, just shocked. Um, So since then, we have graduated probably 300 people who are both deaf and blind. And just like with visual impairments, there's different levels of blindness. There's also different levels of hearing impairments. So somebody could be mildly hearing impaired, so they could still understand voice and communicate using a voice, or they could be um, severely or profoundly hearing impaired, which means they Will most likely use a sign language, and if they're totally blind, then the sign language is done in their hand, so it's hand over hand um, sign language, so they feel what I'm signing to them.
0: So you really, it, w- with that explanation, you really have to train these dogs specifically to the individual, that, because F- there's such a
1: variance in the in the disability there. Yes. And some uh, deafblind clients use their voice and others do not. Um, but that pretty much goes with all of our clients. They each have individual needs, some are balance issues that they might have along with vision impairment. Um, you know some people are world travelers uh, in in the business setting, so we have to have dogs that are that can stand up to that and travel around the world on airplanes and things like that so. Every person is unique, whether it's a deafblind client or a, a visually impaired client. So, how, how does this process work then? You, I'm assuming
0: people have to apply, and then is are, are do you always have dogs in the stable that you're working on at at base levels, and then when somebody gets accepted, you go, you know, I think this dog might be right for them, and then you start to cater that program.
1: That's absolutely correct. So we have different levels of training. It takes about four months for the regular. Uh, guide dog program. So we start with foundation training and then we go on to basic and intermediate and then advanced. Um, Just a brief example of advanced training is when we're teaching dogs to not step out in front of a car, which is a critical skill for the dogs. Um, We call it traffic checking, where one of our instructors will drive the car and we'll show the dog where we want them to stop when a moving car is coming and then we may give them a food reward when they do it on their own, and it's kind of a progression. Um, but then in while we're in advanced training, we're also looking at clients that have applied to the program that have sent us um, their full application, all the information we need, a video of how they travel around their home area, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that as well. And once they're accepted into the program as an applicant or a potential client, then we start the matching process. We say, you know, is this dog, does this dog walk the same speed as this client? Does this client uh, live in a large city or a small city? Do they use escalators? Do they go on airplanes often? Uh, Do they live in a hot climate? Um, Do they, you know, so all those aspects. We also look at What type of dog the client is requesting? So some clients want a German Shepherd, right? Um, And German Shepherds, for some reason, have been very difficult to actually get through the program successfully. They tend to be a little bit more a one-person dog, and when we house them in a kennel for that period of time, sometimes the stress gets to them. Um, But on on in other circumstances, they are phenomenal working dogs. So I can understand the desire to want a German Shepherd. So, is that Does that come from the kind
0: of traditional uh, seeing eye dog that we think of being a, a German Shepherd, you know, three decades ago? Is it, is it still, is that what that's coming from?
1: You know, some of it is that, but also we have clients that have come back from multiple dogs over the years, right? A dog might live or work for eight or nine years and then be retired. Um, and if they 've had experience with German shepherds in the past they 're going to want another one, yeah. if they were successful because um again they they can be phenomenal working dogs and they 're active dogs, just like the hunting dogs, right They need to be challenged um whereas labradors you know they they need to be challenged as well, just not at the same level as a german shepherd um so German shepherds love new environments they love um challenging environments where the labs are happy to. You know, travel around a small town and do the same thing every day, maybe. Yeah, are our labs the,
0: the most popular in the program?
1: They are. Yeah, we uh, we started. We have all of our dogs are um, bred and um, raised for leader dogs for the blind. Uh, we do take some outside um, breeding stock um, sometimes, whether it's the semen from a male or you know a female or a puppy, but mainly most of it's. Um, within our colony. And then we have foster homes that they're volunteers that raise our dog for a year. So we typically have about 400 puppies being raised for us every year. Um, and then once they're a year old, they bring the dog back and give it back to us. And then we begin, begin the formal, um, training process for the guide guide dogs. How many of those dogs make it all the way through? Half. um so sometimes it, it fluctuates just over half and sometimes just under half some of the issues could be medical it could be a medically related um, we call them career change because we don't want to use them as a, a career as a guide dog so we might use them um, or offer them up to another service dog organization so if they get medically career changed then you know we may still offer them up or we offer them back to the people that raised them for that year. Um, Other reasons that dogs can be career changed are if they're highly distracted. And so we see that in the labs and the goldens and even the shepherds sometimes where um, if they're, you know, guiding us down the street and they see a squirrel, well, guiding goes out the window and they just want to chase the squirrel. So whether it's ingrained in in their genetics or that's how they were raised as a puppy being allowed to do some of those behaviors um, it's not always clear, but sometimes we we just need to career change the dogs because we can't teach them to not um, react to those distractions and that's probably the number one reason that we career change a dog is for distraction reasons yeah so you're you're the breeding program that where you guys are
0: you know sourcing these dogs from in some ways would probably be the opposite of almost every person I've ever talked to on here, where you're like, we don't need the prey drive. We, we we need, you know, you're going to get some level of it, but you're like, if we can get a subdued prey drive out of these dogs, we'll, we'll take it.
1: That's right. And if we can actually manage it. So even if they are, um, distracted or, uh, driven towards chasing things, um, if we can teach them, with the use of positive reinforcement and and clicker training and things like that, and they respond, then that's, that's acceptable. Uh, But if it's so ingrained that they just won't respond to us, then you're absolutely right. We can't put those dogs in the hands of somebody who is visually impaired because they might not anticipate what's going to happen. If there's a squirrel or a rabbit or a cat up in front of them. Right.
0: Well, I mean, that's the, that training right there in that assessment of you know h- how well can you handle distractions i mean that is that is an issue with dogs i mean it it's like a, a you're you're going against their nature so hard in some situations and you you know it, the average house dog you can afford to have a dog that gets distracted it doesn't you know it might be a inconvenience but it doesn't really matter but you guys can't afford to have that
1: Right, it's putting somebody's life at risk potentially, and um, you know uh, the breeds that we use just tend to be their hunting dog breeds, right? They're they're the Labs and the Goldens, and we we do a lot of the crosses with the Labs and Goldens. Um, We've also crossed some Shepherds with Labs because we find that there's a good balance um, between the the two breeds, whether it's Labs and Goldens or Labs and Shepherds. Yeah, you don't need purebred dogs. Well, right. I mean, we have a lot of them and uh, they tend to work out, but only 50 percent of them. Right. So, yeah, it would be nice to have 80 or 90 percent success rate. Uh, That's just not how it works. And, you know, I've been in the in the organization for a long time. And we've changed the training methodologies over the years to become more a lot more humane and, um, you know, almost 100 percent clicker and food reward. Uh, based training. So any new behavior, we're using a clicker to teach the behavior. And then we're using a food reward to reinforce that. And then we kind of phase uh, the food reward out. So it's just a random food reward. And we teach our clients how to do the exact same thing. A lot of guide work is really about what we call target training. So either the dog is targeting with their paws, they're targeting a curb, stopping at the curb so they don't walk somebody into the street, where it's dangerous, or they're targeting with their nose, using their nose to touch the front door of their house, right, or a mailbox. Whatever we want them to uh, learn to go to and target is what we teach the dogs to target, and then we teach the clients the same thing. So you
0: can you can take a lot of these dogs and and lead them, you know, with their nose and a, a treat in your hand, right to the object.
1: Right. Yes. And that's really the first step is helping them get to the end goal, right? And then we back up and we want the dog to make the decision to do that themselves. So we need thinking dogs that can problem solve. And if they're not doing the exact behavior we're looking for, then we're not going to use that marker, which is the click. And then they're not going to get a follow-up food reinforcement. When you
0: started, because you mentioned you started in 1981, what were the breeds you were working with then?
1: We used um, every breed you could think of. Um, Any large breed dog, we had them here. We got a lot of our dogs from the Humane Society. And uh, I ended up with my favorite pet dog, which was a Chesapeake Bay Retriever, who was a phenomenal hunting dog. Um, Absolutely loved it, but it was not a guide dog, right? It didn't make it as a leader dog. Um, so we've had, over the years, we've had Huskies and we've had uh, Bouviers, we've had Ridgebacks, um, we've had a couple of Rottweilers, but, you know, we've realized that those breeds were not being uh, successful as guides. So we wanted to narrow that down and really just focus on the, the breeds that we knew would be successful. Yeah. Some, some breeds, people, people
0: get upset about this, but there are some breeds that have a long, long history of working closely with people <laughs> and they, they tend to work out in these roles better than others. And it, it doesn't mean the other ones are bad. It just means some of them are meant for this and some of them aren't. That's
1: right. Yeah. Yeah. I've had a lot of, um, breeds that were not guiding breeds as pets in the past. And I, you know, I like different breeds. I like spending time with them and learning about them, and training them and things like that. So um, yeah, of course, as dog trainers, you know, that's, that's part of what we love. So
0: I, I, one of the reasons I got super interested in this, I listened to a woman who is a, a voice actor for, for movies and she's, she's blind and she had a lab and she was talking about how, you know, obviously how that dog changed her life, but how, vocal that dog got to communicate with her like that dog and i don't know the training behind that dog but the way she made it sound it was like that dog was like okay this woman can't see me we're not making this eye contact and i know i need to get her attention in different ways like how how often do you see dogs really adapting to that situation and like, and like how challenging is it for you because you can see you can hear you're training this dog for somebody who might not be able to do either thing how, how easy is that to replicate and how often do you see these dogs do kind of this amazing adaptation to their to their person
1: well you know again I've I've been doing this business doing this job for a long time and you know I'm amazed every time I go out to visit a client that's had a dog for For a period of time and they're successful because the dogs just adapt so well to the different needs of the people and everybody is different so um we we take our dogs and we uh work them under blindfold so we go under full blindfold each instructor has to train eight dogs um to what we call class ready so we can match them with clients and each one of those dogs has to work under blindfold. I mean, the person is under blindfold and they have to be responsible for that person. So um, the dogs get a taste of that, but it's not 24 hours a day, you know, seven days a week. Um, so it takes some time to adjust to their new person, but it doesn't matter. The dogs don't really care whether the person can see or can hear. Um, with the dogs, for the, the clients for who are deaf blind. Uh, we stop using our voice. If we know the client doesn't use their voice, then halfway through training, we stop using our voice. And we just communicate with uh, hand signals and the dogs adapt to that really well, especially now that we use a lot of food training and positive reinforcement that's made a huge difference.
0: That's, that's incredible. What's the biggest challenge then?
1: Well, the biggest challenge is obviously the match with the, the dog, with the client. So, um, a lot of times we don't get to meet the client um, before we really have a match, uh, a matching meeting with with the dog. So, um, again, in advanced training, we start to match the dogs with our clients who we have a videotape of. Right um, when the client arrives at Leader Dogs, so they clients come from all over the world and stay here in our dormitory um, for three weeks, and we give them their dog and we train them how to use that dog for three weeks. And then we send them home with that dog. So the, the most difficult part is choosing a dog for someone else. You know, it's um, say you were, I I'd like to use this example because for people who drive, it's kind of, for us, it'd be like me going to pick out a new car for you. I don't know what options you want on that car. I don't care. I'm just going to pick this out and you, you have to keep that car for the next 10 years. By the way, it doesn't have air conditioning; it only has roll-down windows. But that's your car for the next ten years, right? So this is their mobility, and um, so that's the most challenging part. It doesn't always work. Sometimes somebody is with a dog for a week and realize that the dog isn't adapting to the person, or vice versa. We always have backup dogs, so we always have a dog waiting that we could replace a dog with. So I would say, out of two hundred. People that we work with every year, we might have—excuse <clears throat> me—we might have to change maybe three dogs out of the 200. Um, so it's not a, a high percentage. We we do a fairly good job of figuring out what the person's needs are and matching that dog with them. But that's the hardest thing to learn in this job because it's not um, a skill that is easily taught. Well,
0: yeah, that's an inexact science, right? I mean you, you know the dogs well, you don't know these people, and their their situations vary so much, and so it's it's understandable that you might not bat a thousand percent on that
1: right, right yeah. and the you know the uh the other aspects of the guide work for the client is guide dogs don't know their their way to the bank or to the donut shop or the coffee shop the client has to know where they're going to be able to tell the dog which direction they wanna go that day, right? So it's very similar to driving a car. Um, Even if we have a GPS and it'll tell us directions, we still have to steer that car, right? So with a guide dog, we still have to give directions to the dog. We have to tell them to go straight ahead. We have to tell them to go right and left. Um, And all our dogs obviously learn those commands throughout the training cycle but it's important for the clients to know their home area and be able to walk around their home area uh before they come to get a dog.
0: Yeah, I guess you don't I mean I I wouldn't think about how challenging that would be because you you hear a lot about the you know adapting to the the home or the apartment and knowing where every end table is and everything else, but you don't think about that trip down to the grocery store, or the gas station and the and the you know not infinite amount of variables that they can run into but a real high number. That's a challenge,
1: right? And so we we also have an orientation and mobility department at Leader Dogs for the Blind. So orientation and mobility teachers. It's a you know it's a master's degree at college that you get for teaching visually impaired people how to travel using a white cane. Um, so if people are not ready for a, a leader dog, then they can come here and we can teach them how to use a white cane um and then they can practice those skills and they can come back and get a a leader dog in the future potentially um so the difference between a white cane and a and a leader dog is the white canes are they they're giving you information down or up the cane right so if you run into an obstacle with a cane that means you're not running into it with your body and you can move around it with a dog they see the obstacle ahead of you and they naturally avoid that obstacle so it's uh, less information for the client, for the visually impaired person, um, but it's also a, a little bit smoother um, um, mode of, you know, walking. Hmm.
0: So, man, there's so many things that that, that that just opens up and you think about, I, I, I would love to know just how when those dogs go with a client to that new environment, to the new house, to the new neighborhood, to the new traveling situation, how quickly they start to really learn some of those routes to the bank. you know because when you you know this, you're a dog lover and trainer, they figure stuff out and they remember stuff really well. I, w- I would love to know how quickly, especially those dogs like that, that you're churning out, they're problem solvers. And so their their brains are probably working on a really really high level and I bet they're learning some of those routes. I bet it would blow our minds how quickly they're becoming just comfortable with some of those situations.
1: Yes, and we you know, we ask our clients to take it slow in the beginning. So just like we we when we work with the clients here at Leader Dogs, the client doesn't know Rochester, Michigan, which is where we're located. So we have to teach them the city of Rochester. So we take them on one block and show them one square block and then we'll expand that to two blocks and three blocks and four blocks and the people have to do the same thing with the dogs when they get home but the dogs do pick it up very quickly and once they've been someplace one time they're very likely to go back there especially if they got you know rewarded or uh, whether it's food reward or physical praise or verbal praise um, you know the dogs love that and they love to do the work to yeah. How, how old are these
0: dogs when you're placing them with clients?
1: So we start their formal training between 12 months and 14 months old. So then we have four months of training for the regular program. For the deafblind program, it's a little bit longer. It's about six months of training. So they could be almost two years old before they get matched with a client. And they'll work till they're 10 or, 10 or 11 um, in most cases, as long as they're healthy. Wow uh,
0: what what's the demand like because you you mentioned that this this kind of light bulb moment where you went to the sign language you went to learn the sign language at the convention and you realized that there was a this a, a demand you couldn't even possibly imagine unless you unless you don't know what you don't know I mean what what's it like for you guys when you're sitting there and you're like, okay, we have X amount of applicants and X amount of dogs I mean what's what's the disparity there?
1: well, you know, first of all, um, dog or guide dogs are not for every visually impaired person or or deafblind person. And not every person wants one uh, because they are a lot of care, you know, care and vet expense and grooming and things like that. Where Whereas a white cane, when, you know, when you're done using it, you can put it in a corner. That's not the case with a dog. But uh, for the deafblind program, we've had a waiting list ever since we started the program because... There are very few uh, guide dog schools in the United States that will work with someone with a dual, dual impairment. But we, we put them chronologically, and we try to service the people that have been waiting the longest uh, first. So, you know, we'll each instructor, as I said, has about uh, uh, between six and eight dogs that they trained all the way through. But they can only work with three clients at a time. With DeafBlind, it's uh, two clients or one client at a time. But in the regular uh, visually impaired program, they'll work with three people at a time. And we'll have, um, say, four instructors uh, working with clients at the same time. So potentially, we'll have uh, 15 or, or 18 clients at one time that are here at Leader Dogs, and we'll be giving dogs to them. And the other dogs are in training and trying to develop those skills for the next group of people that come in. Um, But we have clients in pretty much all year round with a Thanksgiving break and a Christmas break. Other than that, we have clients here almost full time. The other aspect is we're an international school, guide dog school. So we bring people in from Spain and Mexico. And both Spain and Mexico have small guide dog schools, but they can't. Uh, keep up with the demand for guide dogs in their uh, countries. So they'll send, you know, five, four or five clients here at a time with an interpreter. And we'll have our instructors work through the interpreter with the clients. And then we'll send them back to uh, Spain or Mexico, which is really, really neat. Yeah. I mean, it,
0: just just like on a personal level, I, I have to imagine, I mean, you you you've had to just probably come to the the acceptance that like, there's, there's only so many we can do and develop properly at one time. And even knowing that demand, it probably has to weigh on you a little bit. Cause if you could expand and, and grow, you, you, you might not ever meet the demand, even if you were, you know, 10 times the size or 20 or hundred times the size. But the, the reality of this is the same thing when we talk to people who, you know, they train military dogs or police canines, or, you know, these highly specialized dogs, it's like, you can't just churn them out. This is this is not just breed them, sell them, and go. Like there's there's years, you know, years of development here, and a washout rate that even if you're at fifty percent is is a big deal. I mean, you're it's it's got to be a little bit like holy cow, like we could do so much more, but we can't do so much more.
1: Exactly, and since it takes three years to teach um, a guide dog instructor to become fully skilled. Um, you know, that's a process as well. We have several people that have either retired or left the organization. We have to replace those people. And it takes three years. It's not just like a one-month training. It's three years. So we we obviously give the, the apprentices um, some responsibility in the beginning, and then we kind of uh, build on that as they learn the job and we'll give them more responsibility as they go. But we sure can't. You know, give them a full string of dogs, of eight to ten dogs, and expect them to train them for four months um, without the the knowledge of dog behavior and positive reinforcement and exactly what a guide dog does. Um, and same with the the clients and visual impairments. That you know, there's a lot of knowledge that it takes to teach somebody that's visually impaired. Yeah. What? So
0: earlier you mentioned
1: uh, that distractions were one of the
0: biggest the biggest obstacles to overcome with these dogs. What's another one? What's another one that you run into just frequently with these, these dogs where you're like, Oh man, we, we deal with this a lot.
1: Um, I would say the, the next highest besides the distractions is probably the medical um, because we could have a dog that's in training for two months and then develop allergies because from our vet's point of view, uh, allergies tend to develop at a year or two years old. So. Uh, we see some of that happen. We see ear infections and um, some of the skin infections um, with Goldens and Labs and even some of the Shepherds. But besides that, I would say uh, probably the lack of desire to to do the work, um, that we run into that not, not nearly as frequently as uh, the distraction levels. Um, but we do see that now and then, dogs that uh, we take them out to to guide us, and they're just um, they're just not wanting to do the job. They don't want the challenge. They don't like that, and um, we can't if they don't like doing the job, we can't use them. Uh, we have to have dogs that really love to to get out there and go and and like to think, um, that don't want to lay around and be a pet, right? Yeah. Well, so this kind of this makes
0: me want to back up to what I said earlier about the prey drive. Because really, what you're what you're kind of alluding to here is what we hear in the hunting world a lot, where you you're kind of choosing between a a lower drive dog that's nicer at home, but how much can you get out of them in the field versus a high drive dog that might be a pain in the ass at home, but you you got to learn to you know how do you pump the brakes with you guys? I mean, I think what you're saying here is. Some of them, you just can't light a fire under them. And, you know, so you'd probably, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but you'd probably have rather have one that you had to dial back a little bit, but that shows up to work versus one that just is like, I I don't want to do this.
1: You hit the nail on the head. Exactly. I would rather work with a dog that has a little bit more energy, um, even if it has a little higher uh, level of distraction than a dog that you have to try to motivate to do the work. um, Because it's, you know, being a cheerleader for the dog is, is great, but you can't do that 24 seven. And we can't expect our clients to do that either. So, you know, it's nice when we can find that high drive dog that isn't overly distracted. I mean, there are few and far between, but we can find it or we can curtail those distractions uh, to a level where a, a client would be able to handle it. Um, so if somebody's working a dog in a guide harness, um, there's a big difference between walking down a sidewalk at a normal pace. And when that dog sees a squirrel or a cat or another dog and starts to pull, you can really feel the difference in the harness. So at that point, then we can stop and we can reset the dog and do what we call a time out. We just take a break and don't give the dog any feedback at all and just stand there for a period of time. We pick up the harness and we try to try to start uh, going again um, down the path that we were on. If we get past the distraction, then we'll use food reward to reward that.
0: So you're kind of describing there when the when the dog's energy changes around that distraction, you know, it like you you kind of mentioned this earlier, 40 years ago, you might light that dog up somehow. Now you're doing this reset moment where you're just like, I'm just going to let you, we're going to wait this out. You're going to learn to just calm down. And if you do, then we move on, and good things will happen. That's that seems to be the the most. I, I mean, this is just me speaking here, but the most interesting direction that dog training is taking right now.
1: It is, and you know the the nice thing is that some people are uh, kind of reluctant to change, but I absolutely love the changes that we've made. I love training dogs using positive reinforcement and clicker training. They learn so much faster and those behaviors are very solid. So 35 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, we would have taken a dog out and walked it, um, around a route several times. So stopping at the curbs, doing all of it for the dog. And then we start to transition that responsibility to the dog. And if it didn't stop for the curb, we might give it a correction, right? Uh, which was more harsh. Uh, whereas now we teach the dog to go to the curb, we use a clicker, and the dog says, wow, I did something right. Um, and then they get a food reward after that. And uh, boy, they learn so fast. It probably cut just the curb training to teach the dogs to stop at at multiple curbs and generalize that behavior. It cut that time in half for us. That's incredible. When you, when you talk about this curb training and you're, you're setting up these
0: scenarios, because I have to imagine you're it like half of your dog training life is just thinking about what's, you know, cars coming this way, cars coming this way. How do we set this up and train for this over and over again? You know I mean? It's, it's kind of funny to joke about the squirrel, which you know, is like just this wild card that's coming into that dog's life. Something, something's coming there, but some of the dangerous parts of this, you know, that, that's just a bad behavior thing or, you know, whatever, but stepping out into traffic's a bad one. (laughs) Like You got to avoid that. So how much of your your life is like anticipating those kind of needs for your clients and going, how the hell do I set this up to train a dog over and over to look left, look right, or, you know, figure out when to cross or listen to the crossing or whatever. Like how, how much of that just eats up your life?
1: Well, so there's uh you know, a concept for, uh, for guide dog instructors, and we know it because we're in the business and visually impaired people know it because they're visually impaired, but just like, When they travel with a cane, when they come up to an intersection, they have to determine whether it's safe to cross or not. And the way they do that is they listen for the traffic flow. So if the traffic's moving in front of them, they know if they step out, they're going to get hit by a car, correct? That's the same concept with a guide dog. So when they're using a guide dog, when they get to the curb, the dog will stop. But it's not the dog's decision when to cross that street. It's the person's decision. So they can use a pedestrian crossing button and we can target our dogs to that. So we can teach them to push, you know, go up and touch the nose to the pole where the pedestrian crossing button is. And some of them are verbal. They'll tell you when it's okay to cross. Some are tactile. It will vibrate for people who are, who can't hear or see. Um, And sometimes it's just a walk sign. So when, The person feels it's safe to cross, then they ask the dog to go out into the street. Well, if a car is coming up close to them and it's moving, the dog has been taught to avoid that moving car, but they're not avoiding moving cars that are going 50 miles an hour. That's not even feasible or reasonable to ask a dog. So, you know, the close traffic that's moving at at a slower pace, the dogs will stop for that and refuse to move. And we call that intelligent disobedience when they're intelligently disobeying something that the instructor or the client had asked them to do. That is interesting
0: because it's so I assumed the dog was the one calling the shot there. They're not, but they're the ones calling the safety. You know, they're, they're kind of just acting as security there. That that's interesting.
1: And they have to go from, one curve across the street to the other curb in a straight line, which you know sounds pretty simple, but there's a lot of options when you get out into the street, right? They could go any direction they want. They could go left or right down the, down the tra- traffic lane. Um, but the dogs, because they're magnetized to the curb, they love going to the curb because we've taught them that, and they know they'll get a reward there, especially in the beginning of trading, they're going to go straight across the street to that curb. So you're breaking that, that's
0: that's cool. You're taking what's we like, I, I would be so dismissive of that. If you're like, oh, I trained a dog to cross the road, I'd be like, okay, big deal, right? <laughs> like that seems like a pretty basic thing, but you're actually creating these positive associations with a feature of the road on both that's guaranteed to be on both sides that these dogs are gonna bump into every single time they cross the road. And you're saying, here's a good point, buddy. There's a good point get between the two or, you know, go from one to the other. That, that's
1: interesting. And avoid any moving traffic, you know, so you need to stop if there's a car coming in the street too close to you, or even if you're walking down the sidewalk and a car's backing out of a the driveway, then yeah. the dogs need to stop for that. So
0: that, that concept of intelligent disobedience, I, my, my dog does that sometimes when I tell her to go get a rooster and she knows actually where it is. <laughs> And she's just like, no, nah, I know you're pointing this way. I'm just going to go over here, <laughs> pick it up, bring it back to you. Uh, I, there's some disobedience that doesn't seem so intelligent with her, but sometimes you see that. That's that's an interesting concept where you have not only do you have this more than more than we would assume complex task, but you also have this variable of a certain level of traffic that they they do have to pay attention to. And it, what that reminds me of. I can't remember this dude's name but i I was listening to a guy one time talk he was a coyote researcher and he was studying coyotes in urban environments and so he was talking about how i think it was in la and chicago where they studied coyotes and how these coyotes they would get them on traffic cameras going up to either crossing crosswalks that had the, the visual marker of you can go and they could see them listening and and they learned no traffic coming. I'm going to go through that method, or they would get them going up to a busy intersection, and they or a busy road, and they would see the ears scissoring, and they'd be listening to traffic, and they just whoop weave their way through. It's incredible.
1: I'm going to have to look that up now. Yeah, <laughs>
0: no. I'll, I'll, when we get off of here, I'll, I'll I'll send that to you because I I think I remember his name, but it's really it's it's an amazing example of how a wild canid adapts to that urban environment. So you think about some of these asks of a, a hunting dog and you go, man, some in some ways it seems like it should be such a simple thing, but it's not. But if there's random coyotes out there figuring this stuff out, these dogs that work with us, they can get there with the right training.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, you know, obviously uh, our dogs learn that through um, a progression of, you know, training sessions with traffic coming at that's controlled the traffic coming at them. So, yeah. So let's take uh,
0: somebody who's deafblind and you've got a dog that has to work with them. So they, they're on a harness leading them around or, you, you know, like that's that's very intuitive. We understand that. But how does the communication differ dog to human, human to dog? Is it all based on touch then? It, I mean, it would have to be, right?
1: Yes. If the, if the client doesn't use their voice, some people use their voice and it's hard to understand, but the dogs will get used to, you know, what they're saying and the words and what they mean. Um, But typically uh, to communicate, especially directional commands, it's a hand signal. So uh, the hand, uh, when we push it to the right, that means to go right. We also move our body. So some of it is our body language. So if we want to turn right, we're going to use a hand signal and we're going to turn our body a little bit to the right. And then the dog is going to guide us around the corner to the right. Um, as far as other things, you know, the dogs can learn uh, so many different signs from sign language. So especially like if you think about um, this is eat. So if you do that every time you pick up a dog food pan, do this, and then you don't even pick up the dog food pan and do that. The dog's going to know. Um, what you are saying to the dog. So they're going to get excited about the food, right? So they can learn just hundreds of different um, sign language uh, words. Um, So yeah, so a lot of it's physical. Obviously the praise and some food reward. Sometimes we'll use the leash to help with the directional uh, commands if the dog isn't responding when they first get the dog because that bond isn't built yet. Uh, But after time, then, then the dogs respond really well. Yeah. And so there's large populations of deafblind around the United States, and uh, I can try to explain a little bit about that without going into too much detail. But uh, one example is Seattle, Washington. Another example is Long Island, New York. So Long Island has Helen Keller National Center where they work with deafblind adults and they teach them skills like life skills. In Seattle, there's a Lighthouse for the Blind. That also teaches orientation mobility. They provide jobs. They have a, a workshop there for clients who are visually impaired or deafblind. They teach them how to use the machines in the machine shop, and people can earn a living. And they so they congregate to these areas where there's other people with similar communication styles and uh, things like that. Um, so we, you know, have a, a large population of our clients are in Seattle, Washington and um i have been there several times and you know watch some of our graduates work their dogs and it's amazing it's just amazing how they get around the city they obviously live independently they um, go down to the bus the city bus they take a bus and then go to their their work wherever it is and then come back home and uh the dog just helps them out dogs um those dogs are pretty much route travelers. So they travel the same route every day. Um, not that they, they are limited to doing that, but that's typically what um, a deafblind client might do in a daily uh, work session with their dog. Yeah, you, I, I would just have to
0: imagine, you know, given the nature of the relationship between dog and client that they're, they become like incredibly bonded. I mean, it has to be crazy, right?
1: It it is, and you know the difficult part of all of that is dogs don't live as long as we do, and they can only work for you know eight to ten years, right? So the person can either keep the dog as a retired guide dog, and come back and get another dog, or they can bring the dog back, and we'll let that dog retire in the puppy raiser's home, whoever raised that puppy, um, so that they. Kind of goes full circle sometimes, where the puppy raiser gets the the old dog back and gets to finish out their life in a nice, comfortable home. Which, um, even if the client decides to keep the dog and get another dog, then they're going to be comfortable in that home as well. But uh, adapting to a new dog is completely different than working with a dog that you've worked with for eight to ten years, right? So it's um, something that is so familiar with for the dog and so familiar for the person. Um, when you get a new young dog, they just don't do the same thing, right? They, they have to learn all of those skills and the routes and, uh, they have to learn the person and the, the quirks of the person. So yeah, it's, it's a tough thing when they come back for a second or third dog. Uh, that's probably the hardest part for our clients. Yeah. No, I I could see that. What what is a
0: what is like a common complaint with with the clients when they're out with a dog? Is is the most common complaint of people messing with the dogs and wanting to pet them?
1: You know, I again, I would have to go back to uh, to distractions. Oh, okay. Um, again, even though we work with the dogs and we um, get them to the level where a client could handle those distractions. If they don't practice the techniques that we've taught them um, or the dog is allowed to um, be reactive to those distractions, then it can become a big issue. Um, Outside influences by family members and things like that can also play a part in it. So if you can imagine, you know, uh, somebody comes to get a dog and they go home and they have um, a spouse and children at home and the dog has so much fun with the spouse and children that it doesn't want to go out and do its work, right? Because I'd rather go and have fun than work, um, even though I love my job. I don't want to say I don't, I don't love my job. Um, but yeah, you know, so some of those things can happen as well. Um, but typically, I would say the biggest complaint is the distractions. Yeah. Well, and there, there
0: must be, I'm just I'm just speculating here, but when you... When you think about dog training, it's so much of it is anticipating behavior, recognizing something's coming up, something's going to happen, and the dog's going to react this way or that way and getting ahead of it. And, you know, so much dog training is built on that. But, you know, we take it for granted if I'm walking down the road and I see somebody coming down the other side of the road with a dog or I see that squirrel running out or whatever – I have a I have a heads up and can anticipate that my dog's going to be pulling on the leash or trying to do something. It's it's or you know just it's going to take her focus away. If you can't see and hear, you know, or you know, can't see or hear very well, it's probably a hell of a lot harder to anticipate some of those distractions and so it's you're probably living in a reactionary world instead of being proactive on those, I would guess.
1: Absolutely. And again, you know, it comes down to once the dog starts to react which is what you're going to feel in the harness, then you have to do something about it. But you're, you're absolutely correct for us in training. Before we start training with the blindfold on, we can get on top of some of those things and train the dogs, you know, to not react to those. But once the dog understands that uh, somebody isn't able to anticipate, then they will take advantage sometimes. And it, you know, it doesn't happen often, but, um, you know, I would say that's probably the biggest issue. But yeah, you're again. You're correct with the anticipation of those those issues and not being able to anticipate. What's the re, what's the most rewarding part about this, man? Well, you know, obviously making the clients successful and keeping them out there for, you know, eight to ten years with a guide, and it's just uh, awesome if you get to go see them again in their home environment and watch the dogs work and just think, you know, you know, I was part of that. I didn't do it all because our clients do a huge part of it, just adapting their dogs to their home environment and building that relationship with the dog. But we played a small part in it by training the dog originally and making that match with the person. And I think that's just been, you know, so rewarding over the years to see those, those clients that come back to us and say, wow, I want to work with that person again, because they did a a great job with my previous dog. Yeah.
0: How, How often, or I guess I should say, How challenging is it? Cause this is, I I literally was just talking to a dog trainer buddy of mine five minutes before we started this. And he was talking about how difficult it is to get the clients, his clients to understand like, I, I'm going to train your dog, but so are you not just, you know, you're not going to send your dog to me and it's going to get gunfire and bird introduced, whatever introduced. And then all of a sudden you're going to have this great dog. It's like, this is the responsibility is on both of our shoulders. Like how hard is it to get that message across? Cause I would assume people, you know, potential clients would be like, I'm going to get this dog that's fully trained. It's going to be amazing. And it's going to make my life better. There's a big asterisk there. Cause you, you have to take ownership of that dog every day. Like how, how hard is it to get that message across? Like to, to get it really understood.
1: Yeah. I mean, you are asking some great questions and you have really good insight to, so that whole process so i trained dogs outside of leader dogs for years with the general public and what i found was they wouldn't follow through so i'd give them a plan i would show them how to do things and they would demonstrate that they knew how to do them but then they wouldn't follow through with that plan right so they wouldn't be successful so i actually got out of that business because in this business somebody's life depends on this dog so they're going to put forth an effort now They don't necessarily come here with a clear understanding of how much work it's going to take. Um, And we generally will ease them into that whole process. So what we do is we take them out with a harness, with a leash, with no dog. So for the first two days, it's the instructor playing the part of the dog. I'm pulling the harness and misbehaving sometimes so the client can learn what to do once they get a dog in their hands and in the harness. And then we introduce the dog to them and we keep our leash attached to that dog. So that person is not independent with that dog on their own. And it's a progression. We take, you know, we take the leash off and we're walking behind them, directly behind them. So we're helping support that dog. The dog knows we're there and they can see with peripheral vision that we're there and they can feed off of us if we you know, think the dog isn't going to stop or avoid an obstacle, we can kind of make a body movement and they'll respond to that. Um, But we gradually turn that responsibility over to the client and we teach them how to problem solve. We teach them, you know, dog skills and dog training. Yeah. So they initially, when a lot of people come here, unless they've had guide dogs before, they don't necessarily understand how much work it's going to take. But um, most of the people are very committed to it once they understand how the dog can help them yeah. because you you said it they come here thinking the dog's fully trained it's going to be a robot it's not going to make any mistakes it's not going to be distracted it's not going to go to the bathroom or need to be groomed but you know then reality sets in and all, all those things happen so yeah we so you you said kind of the
0: the the structure of their first three years is that, you know, they're spending a year with a foster family or, you know, somebody's somebody's working with these puppies, raising these puppies, doing socialization and obedience work and everything else. Uh, then, you know, you guys are getting your hands on them. How important is it? I, I'm wrestling with this. I have mentioned this a bunch of times recently because I've got a eight eight year old lab and I've got a four and a half month old pup. And my eight year old lab is my dog. I worked with her. I trained her. So she works for me. And she doesn't want to listen to my wife or my kids the same way. And I'm like, I'm not doing that again. You know, like I, I want this puppy. Whoever handles her, just like I want her to snap to it with whoever. And you, you guys must really bump into that where you have to make sure these dogs are willing to work. Whomever's given the commands is like they're they're in charge. You must you must have to emphasize that in the training, right?
1: We do, and you know, not only does it take time for the dog to adapt to not being directly with the instructor? Uh, Because we've been with them for the last four months and we've been teaching them all these skills. Um, And now we're asking them to do this for a brand new person that they don't know. Um, But it's also um, some of those dogs that are standoffish throughout training, like they don't really care that you're there. Those sometimes are the worst dogs that are, have separation anxiety. From their instructor Um, so it takes uh, uh, quite a bit of time and sometimes we'll just have a different instructor work with that dog so i'll use an example german shepherds they become so attached to the person that's trained them it's hard for them to adapt to a new person Um, but once they do and we try to explain that to clients that they're going to have the same connection to you as they do to me it's just going to take some time so you know it's sometimes Getting out of the dog's sight and having another instructor step in where they're not attached to that person, uh, but again, we go back to the family environment where sometimes it's more fun to play with the family or the family dog than it is to guide the person, and that can become an issue. Do you, you must anticipate that though
0: through the, you know, the the interview process or the application process, right? We do,
1: yeah, and we uh, try to educate the person and we try to educate the family as well. Uh, wherever the dog's going to be going, the environment. We um, have different uh, virtual learning opportunities for families before people even come here to get a dog, so they have an understanding of who's supposed to care for the dog, um, who's you know in charge of working the dog and walking the dog and things like that. So they have a good understanding of that.
0: Yeah, I, I have to imagine, you know, easily one of the most challenging things, but also it has to be so cool to you, 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 you can't get bored, right? Like you, you must not ever be bored with this job because you're dealing with so, so much variability and so many new situations with dog and client every week that it it has to kind of keep the fire going for you.
1: It does. And it's not only the dog and the client, it's also the instructors. So, you know, again, I've been doing this for a long time, so I'm constantly challenging instructors Asking questions about why they're doing something that they're doing because, you know, we're almost like independent contractors. We teach the apprentices the foundations of guide work and how to teach it, but then they go out on their own and they start to train their own dogs and they find different uh, techniques that might work for them. So then I I challenge the instructors, why are you doing this? And um, if it's working for you, then let's try it with other people and other dogs and um so, yeah, so it's always always challenging, always interesting. Obviously, the deafblind uh, program is a passion of mine, and uh, that's it takes so much patience to communicate to somebody, especially when timing is so critical when it comes to dog behavior, um, as we talked about with a distraction. By the time I communicate something to a client who can't see or hear, the that time has already passed right so we have to come up with different ways to communicate with them and sometimes it's on their back. So we teach different uh communication styles like if we want them to to stop then we'll just put our hand on their shoulder and they'll stop um so if the dog is distracted and we know it's distracted we'll have the person stop if the dog does something really well then we'll tap their shoulder so they can praise their dog or give their dog a food reward so sometimes it's adapting our um communication and um training teaching style to to the client needs. Yeah. How how often I have to imagine
0: that your perspective on life, like I, I, I bet you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I'll bet you when you have something go wrong in your life, I bet you handle it better than most people do, because you probably get reminded often of how lucky you are. And, you know, you're you're exposed to people who got a rough shake in life. And it's probably a great reminder, like, man, a lot of us don't have a whole lot to complain about.
1: That's right. And, uh, you know, I, my wife not, might not agree with that, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I tend to be a very positive person uh because i do know that there's so many challenges out there that i don't have to deal with on a daily basis um and you know i appreciate life and you know to see people that have a dual disability that are totally independent like living independently working um you know just just amazing uh going to school different things like that it's just yeah it is um very rewarding and and uh Always, I'm in awe. So, yeah, it's it's pretty cool, man. How does
0: how does Leader Dog go about getting some support? Who's where's the funding coming from?
1: You know, the it's all public funding. We get um, uh, some corporate um, donations and things like that, mainly uh, through the Lions Club. So we it's a international Lions Club, which is a service organization, and uh, obviously they do a lot with visually impaired. Um, They support us quite a bit through the years, and we were founded by uh, three Lions members that tried to get uh, one of their visually impaired uh, friends um, a dog from a guide dog school, the only guide dog school in the United States at the time, and they had a backlog. So they said no, so they started the school here in Rochester. And so the Lions Clubs are still um, very involved in leader dogs, uh, but we also have a lot of um, Public donation and also um, estates, so people can leave us in their in their wills and things like that. And um, you know, I will say that um, I appreciate how the organization spends the money, the bulk of the money towards our clients and making them successful. So everything for the client is free, including their airfare to come here from wherever they are in the world, and all the food while they're here, the dog, the harness, the food, everything. While they're here, once they get home, then it's the dog becomes their responsibility to, to care for. Um, and, and if there's an emergency vet issue, then we will help them out with that. If it's a expense that they weren't expecting. Yeah. So all of that, all of that,
0: uh, donation information is available on the website. I'm guessing, right.
1: Yes it is. Okay. Yep.
0: Yeah, and we and we we'll, we'll put that up and link to that. Uh Keith, this has been so much fun, man. I really hope you'll come back and and talk more cuz I know when when we get off of this I'm going to think about a thousand questions that I should have asked you that I didn't. So I I hope you'll come back, but I really appreciate you taking the time to 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 do this today. It was really fun, man.
1: Tony, I, you know, in the future I'd love to pick your brain about, you know, hunting and reading and stuff like that cuz that's obviously I'm always curious about dog training and, uh, you know, I love to watch dogs work and again, whether it's hunting or, or, uh, or guide work, service work, whatever, uh, search and rescue. So thank you so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. And, uh, you had some great questions and great insights. So thank you.
0: Well, thanks buddy. You have a good one.
1: All right. You too. Take care.
0: That's it for this episode of Sporting Dog Talk. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, and our YouTube channel. And of course, if you liked what you heard on this episode, please, please, please subscribe. That helps us out so much when we get to see the support from our audience. And lastly, thanks for listening.